and so of course I'm, I'm terribly relieved. But at the same time I'll say this, that I'm not at all surprised by the verdict. Um, uh, um, if they had decided otherwise and sent me back to England, then in my view um, the extradition treaty that exists between Ireland and England would be meaningless because it, it expressly provides protection for a person accused of a political offence. And, and if rescuing a spy from prison is not political, then I don't know what is. What are you going to do now? The story of this escape has been written in book form. And um, my agent is coming over from London in two weeks' time, and I understand that he's taking the manuscript to New York to have it published in America first. And he has, on the strength of reading this manuscript, he has urged me to continue writing, and in fact, I have finished the second book. I hope to make a career in writing. Sean Burke in Dublin, February 1969. After the High Court hearing, which disallowed the application of the British authorities to have him extradited to Britain to face charges in connection with the escape of George Blake. Burke had arrived back from Moscow to Ireland to Shannon Airport on the 22nd of October 1968, the second anniversary of the escape of George Blake. When I arrived at Shannon Airport yesterday, I had in my wallet precisely 40 American dollars given to me uh, in Moscow by the KGB to cover my travelling expenses uh, to Shannon. Apart from that, absolutely nothing. And if any suggestion had been made to me that some secret account in a Swiss bank might, might be arranged for me, and this had been hinted earlier on, uh, I would have turned it on flat, because I have no desire to, con to, to, to uh, put myself in the role of a paid Soviet agent. So what do you do? You Why, first of all, do you come back to Ireland with no obvious prospects? And when you come here, what do you do? I desire to be in the, in the one country where I know that I shall be happy and, uh, and, and certainly safe. And if an Irishman is not safe and secure in Ireland, then for heaven's sake, where is he safe? Where indeed, but from himself and his own. This is the story of a boy who grew up in a tough part of a city. The boy became an adolescent of quick wits. The adolescent became a man with terms of borsal behind him. And the man, while a prisoner in Wormwood Scrubs and editor of the prison magazine, organised the escape of George Blake, then a senior officer in the British intelligence services. Blake was jailed for 42 years for treason, having in his time betrayed crucial Western security information to the Russian KGB. The boy who became the man was never a communist as such, nor part of any system that cushioned his own welfare. The boy who became the great escaper afterwards went to Russia, found it more oppressive than an English jail, returned home, but could never quite shake off that early wound, not with drink or money or notoriety, or being a hero in his own place, could not shake off the wound of whatever happened growing up. His later life after his return to this country was one of despair and disintegration. He squandered £100,000, a celebrity become a derelict, a carving back to that murky twilight world of the castaway which had been his earliest excitement. He died on a lonely country road under the open sky with less than two pounds in his pocket. Whatever else may be said about him, his life and his death were his own. This is Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. 
Come in, please. Over. The recordings you're about to hear were made by Sean Burke in the course of communicating with George Blake over the 20-foot-high wall of Wormwood Scrubs in October 1966 by Walkie Talkie Radio. The recording reveals the arrangements being made to effect the escape while Burke was outside the prison, having been released from there some months previously. Burke does not refer to that recording in his book The Springing of George Blake. He kept it as evidence of his own part in the escape and to refute critics after his death who may have claimed that he did not do what he claimed that he did do. The tool, incidentally, referred to as a small carjack which Burke had caused to be smuggled into Blake to break the struts of the window on the prison landing in the event Blake broke the struts with a kick, scaled the wall and was spirited away by Burke. And incidentally, you will hear Blake's Dutch accent becoming prominent and the references to stone walls do not a prison make are from an English poet, which both of them were studying while in prison. This is Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. Come in, please. Over. Obviously, the first question I must ask you is this. Did you receive the tools? And if so, are they suitable? Over. We did not receive it. Uh, only the handle was found near the, at, at the, uh, at the, uh, at the point place and the, uh, and the covers. But not the jacket itself. It wasn't there. Uh, but that is the position at the moment. Over. Well, this is very regrettable. I'm meeting him again tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. That's the earliest I can discover why you haven't had him. Uh, over. tried to settle in Dublin but found the pull of his own notoriety and the push of his own inner demons too much to cope with. After several incidents involving on one occasion the possession of a gun which he said he needed for protection from some unnamed people and after many forays of drunken excess he returned to Limerick to the city where he had grown up to that formative place where his deviant energies had first flowered. Joe Malone knew him. We were about 12 years of age in John the Baptist. I would be a little bit older than Sean, but that didn't make any great difference because he was a problem child like myself. And actually, John the Baptist was a, a school for, for bad boys, if you like, or troublesome street urchins. Were Sean and yourself both convicted of offences then at that age? 
Sean was convicted of a very minor offence. Uh, I think it was a couple of bananas or, or so. I was brought to court for the stealing of 11 apples. I remember the exact amount because there were four of us there and we could not share the 11 apples equally. We were actually caught in the Burma Road with the 11 apples and we were brought to court and um, brought in front of District Justice Mary Flood. I will not forget his name. And uh, only for the... Uh, the uh, people we stole the apples from, he spoke for us. Uh, we would have been sent away. But my other three pals with me were eventually sent away. What kind of uh, young fellow was he? He, he was a big, soft uh, young man then, you know. He didn't... Uh, of course, you see, the school was full of characters, and it, 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 it was very difficult to stick out. Everybody was a character. You came in late and you went home and you you didn't go. Some, sometimes we may only go to school once a week, and, and they didn't pay much attention to us, you see. But Sean just, he didn't really stick out except for his big head of curly hair and his big broad smile and, and he was a very soft young man then. Never showed any sign of aggression or arrogance and stayed very much by himself. We had a little band in the school and we would march in and out of the school uh, at lunch breaks uh, in single file and we had uh, flagellettes and a little drum and a cymbals and a clapper and Sean would lead a band in playing the clappers. didn't meet Sean Buck then again until I had read about him. What number of years passed? Oh, I suppose nine and thirty-six years, I would say, near enough to it. Uh, this I remember well because uh, Sean Buck had difficulty in getting a flat, you know, in Limerick. I know the estate agent he went into. And when Sean Buck's name was mentioned as the, the uh, occupier of any a few flats, Sean Buck didn't get a flat. They would not uh, give him a flat. So why, why was that? Estate, well, his name, of course, you see, he had appeared on, 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 on television and on radio and on the newspapers, and this famous man who sprang George Blake. So it, it, uh, it was at that time then that he went to live in the country, in the Irish cottages. I had a pub in Limerick, as you know, and Sean was one of my best customers, and he was always very entertaining, a lovely singer, and uh, he had a marvellous sense of humour. Uh, he drank a lot, gave away a lot of money, of course, and, and unfortunately he... he he befriended, I would imagine, uh, rather um, the wrong type of person for, for his own good. But uh, he was always very colourful, uh, a very colourful character, very gregarious, except, of course, in his more depressing moments when he'd drink a bit too much. But by and large, he, he had a great sense of humour and he, he was quite colourful. And uh, uh, he was a bit depressed for a while in Limerick City until the great news came in one uh, Monday morning that Alfred Hitchcock uh, took an interest in, in his book the book he, he had written, and uh, Alfred Hitchcock, or his agent, placed £10,000 in the Northern Bank for Sean. Because I know this, because Sean came in to me and presented me with a cheque for £100. Now, he didn't quite owe me £100, but he, he, uh, he was very generous with money, of course. But he swore that day, this is, this is my connection with Sean, that he would never again handle a cheque book, that he would draw the money as he wanted it, because he had gone through, roughly, I think, between forty and fifty thousand pounds then in a very short time. One story amuses me and I often think about it. It shows you Sean's obsession with some happening. His spiritual home in Limerick, his local pub, was the Munster's Fair Tavern 
it's, it's still there, mind you, just across the road from St. Lawrence's graveyard. And Sean, when he came back here from Russia and came down to live in Limerick from Dublin, he would be in the pub every night drinking with his friends. And one of his great friends from his childhood days was a local man, character perhaps too, called Toddy Long. And Toddy was a former CIA worker. And every night that Toddy and Sean would drink together and a lot of other people in the pub, Sean often spent £1,600 in buying drink for people. Sometimes he'd fill up glasses of brandy all round. Sometimes he'd get songbooks and have them all sing chorus. I remember one night I was there, Sean had dark glasses, and he was singing the songs with Toddy at the bar. He liked that. He liked to be able to pick his friends and associates in bars. He liked to be able to spend money on them. He was reliving perhaps his childhood days when he was impoverished. But one occasion, anyway, Sean was not there in the bar, and Toddy Long fell foul of the owner, uh, Pat Carroll. And Toddy was barred from the pub. And Sean took this as a personal affront almost, a great catastrophe in the pub. So every night, Sean was coaxing and wheedling Pat Carroll to reinstate Toddy Long, in other words, to leave him back to the pub. But to no avail, Pat Carroll had set his face against letting back Toddy Long to the pub. And this became the end-all and be-all of Sean Buck's life. He tried as best he could, every kind of blandishment to Pat Carroll to soften the line to let Toddy back, but no. But eventually, Sean's perseverance won the day. And after some months, uh, Pat Carroll allowed Toddy back to the pub. But that wasn't good enough for Sean at all. He wanted to celebrate the occasion in fitting style, so he hired a pipe band and a photographer. And he got Toddy and the band to assemble in the centre of Limerick, when he had one set of traffic lights, we call it the traffic lights at Todd's and Rochester Stores Corner. And Mulgrave Street is at the continuation of William Street, perhaps the longest street in Limerick. And it was a mile long walk, and the set off, the band playing Toddy, Toddy the head of the band, the band playing, Sean and friends uh, marching behind the band, and they played away up William Street, up along Mulgrave Street, into the pub, and the photographer taking pictures the whole way. And they came into the pub then, and it was drinks on the house all night long. It was the very same as Sean had won a sweep and won a world title. So and then he would go off to booze and he would take long walks around Mealick and he would walk for 10 or 15 miles a day, but then he'd, he'd go back on the booze again. And uh, I, I think as a result, except for a few very uh, colourful articles uh, he, he had written for Jim Kemmy's uh, magazines, he didn't write a whole lot anyway. But uh, he did keep in contact, of course, with, with people in England because uh, I often went to his flat in Gerald Griffin Street, his old warehouse, and one evening we were having great fun. We actually tried him, you know, in a mock trial for, for, for murder. And uh, the evening when the trial was over, we all got very drunk, of course. Sean rang Scotland Yard. And um, the people in Scotland Yard, whoever he got onto apparently knew him quite well. They were on first name terms anyway. And they asked Sean, would he like to call over and collect his old rover? It was still in the yard. So he had a great sense of humour also. Of course, if he had uh, put his foot inside <coughs> the jurisdiction, he would have been uh, charged and tried and probably jailed for uh, aiding and abetting the release of... Well, he checked that out, he told me, and certainly he would have got seven years. You know, he, he, he did keep in contact, you know. He was not always kind of hazy from the booze. He, nevertheless, he still had a very fine, active brain. He could be uh, mischievous. He could be very uh, boyish in his, in his pranks. But he could also be deep, complex man. He was a many-sided figure, Sean. Anti-establishment, difficult, morose, perverse, truculent. He was menacing without being violent. He was never physically violent. He was never a fighting man at all in that sense. 
he, he was driven on by demons. He had demons inside him that he couldn't control. And sometimes those demons got the better of him. What was the nature of those demons? I often tried to work that out myself because while I was a friend of his and very proud to have known Sean Buck, sometimes our relationship was stormy as well. And Sean Buck, he made friends slowly but fell out very quickly, very easily. So our relationship was often delicate and fragile, but still not, it, it persisted to the very end. I'm, I'm glad of that too because I, I remember Sean with affection and I often tried to analyse him. I suppose it was his childhood really, his poverty in his childhood, the fact he was locked up for 11 years uh, behind bars of one kind or another. He was in Dangan first of all, then Boston, and then in Warmer's Clubs, about 11 years in all. So that had an effect on his personality. And it was deeper than that too, perhaps he had some mental disorders as well within him. And uh, as a result of that, he couldn't live in peace with himself. A very talented man. He was a good writer, a masterly writer at times, the best typist I ever saw. He was a bricklayer, trained by Her Majesty, electrician as well he was, and learned other skills in prison. A highly intelligent man, a good editor as well of the prison magazine, but unfortunately unhappy, tortured, tormented figure. Couldn't come to terms with himself. I was born in Limerick by accident, because when my father and mother were going together, when they got married, there was no television in Limerick, thanks be to Christ as a result of which I was born. If Limerick City tomorrow capsized under the weight of his own dirty, filthy hypocrisy into the River Shannon, I was never heard of again. I wouldn't shed a tear, Mr Chairman. I don't know if you're in a position... And the world would have lost nothing! This big front that he put up, uh, he preferred himself. Basically, he was a very kind person. And he wouldn't put a word wrong, of course, when he was sober. But he was very frustrated and very, very conf confused toward the end because he had this... T he, he could write and write quite well and he had a, he had a gift, of course, uh, of a uh, gift of the gab, if you like. And I, I feel that he knew deep down. Remember that Sean Burke used to, after a bout of drink, would stick his head into the toilet bowl for very often an hour in the morning time. You know, he would get, get a dry retching uh, every morning. And he did tell me at one stage that he would rather cut his right hand off than ever drink again. But he, he eventually, of course, he broke out. But to my mind, this was laying heavily on him. He, he realised that he'd, he had a lot to offer, but he could not shake off the old booze. What was the torment, though, that, that was deep in his nature? Well, I, I would imagine, you know, knowing some people a bit like Sean, uh, that it was certainly the, the term in, in, in uh, going to be sent away to a farm school for uh, a couple of... Bananas, I think it was, and then his time. And he swears he did not send a bomb in the post to the policeman in England. But uh, I would imagine even before that, uh, you know, he came from a large family. His father uh, uh, was fond of the jar as well. And uh, they lived in this uh, old uh, warehouse in Gerald Griffin Street. And um, I would imagine it all began there. It was the middle of October when I arrived in Dangan, and I was 12 and a half years of age. Absolute silence had to be maintained at all times. There was no heating in the wash house and the ice was about a quarter inch thick in the basins. I copied the other boys and broke the ice with a quick jab of the elbow before having a wash in the freezing water. A brother was supervising the wash house. He did this by standing on a wooden box. Some boy was heard to whisper to another at the end of the wash house. The brother went red in the face. If I catch the fellow that's talking, he won't be able to talk for a long time. Then he seemed to notice something. 
He jumped down off the box and ran to where the whisper had come from. He caught hold of a boy and proceeded to beat him methodically with his fists. He punched the boy in the face repeatedly until his lip was split and the boy's nose spurted blood. In his frenzy, the crucifix worked its way loose from the belt of his cassock and, dangling from its neck cord, jumped about in a grotesque dance as he carried out his attack on the terrified boy. He then resumed his position on the wooden box and glared up and down the washhouse. Ye scum of the earth, ye dirty, filthy, good-for-nothing scum of the earth, ye pack of robbers, ye will be no loss to anyone when ye go back to the filthy, dirty hovels and the ignorant, illiterate fathers and mothers that ye come from. From the washhouse we were marched once more through the snow and the darkness to the chapel for Mass. He didn't like somebody who was perhaps his match in intelligence and wouldn't perhaps take some of his uh, assertions and some of his statements, which were forthright always, but sometimes would be, would be wrong and perverse. And he didn't like that. You could fall out with him easily and drink. He would drink an awful lot. Sometimes he would drink two and three bottles of whiskey a day. And my abiding memory of Sean is of the markets area of Limerick. Sean would be up early in the morning and you'd see him perhaps at times going to work. You might meet him yourself later, later on that day. And sometimes he would be the worst uh, of wear, or far wear, after a, a, a bout of drinking all day. And that's where he got into trouble with himself, with the law, and with other people. Because the drink had a bad effect on him. When he was sober, he was a different person. When you were a fledgling politician in Nimerick and hardly known nationally, uh, Sean Burke threw in his lot, so to speak, with you. He did. Way back in 1977, when I stood for the doll for the first time, Sean Burke gave me the biggest financial contribution I ever got to my campaign fund. He gave me £200. I, I gave him back, I suppose, that amount afterwards, but I would certainly say one thing. Sean Burke was a very proud man. Sean Burke gave away a fortune. He spent the best part of £100,000 in Limerick in, in the years. He paid light bills, he paid rent, he paid all sorts of other council people, and uh, he didn't ever borrow money from anybody. He was very careful about who, who he would ask for money. I can assure you of that. And he gave me £200 then. He also put his typing skills at my disposal in a number of elections and was very helpful to me and very generous. And while he was not a socialist by any means, he was anti-establishment, he was a radical, he was a wayward maverick in society. But nevertheless, he had a fellow feeling of spirit with me. How did he feel when you went into the Doyle? Well, he was proud of that, mind you. He was very proud of the fact that I got to the Doyle. He didn't think I'd ever do it, mind you. He didn't think I'd ever do it. He thought I was wasting my time, I often said so as well in some of his blacker moments. He thought I was wasting my time, that perhaps the people of Limited didn't deserve all this kind of hard work. What would he say to you? I said, you'll never get hit at all, the people will not respond to, to, to what you're talking about and saying, you're right, of course, I agree with you, but I don't think you'll succeed in what you're doing. Uh, you'd be better off not to get uh, too involved in this, you're wasting your time, you'd better off take up some other pursuits. He would discourage me gently uh, and very half-heartedly as well, he knew that he was wasting his time. But he, he was a bit cynical, about, perhaps, sometimes about uh, people. Even though he spent his time amongst the down-outs, downtrodden, and nevertheless, he had a kind of love-hate relationship uh, for them and for the people of Limerick. He hated journalists, of course. He hated journalists very much, and he didn't like the police either. Mind you, one of the saddest things I ever saw was Sean was in hospital for a while in St. Joseph's Hospital. He had some sort of breakdown. He was trying to get off the drink. And he broke out one day, and... Uh, he was, instead of going back to the hospital, he went up outside the prison, directing traffic in the middle of the streets. He often did this. And uh, 
he was naturally arrested by the police because it was a high security prison in Limerick and they had squad cars going around all the time. So Sean was bundled unceremoniously into a squad car. He was taken up to Edward Street Police Station. And it was a lovely Saturday evening, summer evening. And I got word at 7 o'clock that Sean was inside in the prison, inside in the, the police station. So I was very unhappy about this. I was going off to have a few drinks that night after the week's work. And I thought of Sean lying down in a dirty, filthy cell. So it was more than I could stand. So up I went to the, to the station. And I went in, and the sergeant on duty wasn't very cordial towards me. He was reluctant to, to, to let Sean out and into my care. He said, could I guarantee that Sean wouldn't get into trouble again, which is rather a tall order for me. I told him I couldn't guarantee him that I would be alive in the morning, but I would guarantee him that if he left Sean going to my care, they would see he was taken back to the hospital again and would escort him back personally. So after some argy-bargy, he agreed to leave him into my care rather reluctantly. So I took Sean back. Oh, I went down to the cell to get him out, and I was very sad to see him thrown down like that. And also, it struck me that Sean had become institutionalised because he was thrown down in in filthy cell, terrible surroundings, and it it really wounded me terribly, pained me terribly. I couldn't tell you how deeply I felt and how shocked I was to see poor Sean thrown down on the ground in vomit and filth of all the indescribable sort. So, come on, Sean, I said, cheer up, we're going out of here. So he picked up, perked up immediately, and came with me. And well, it was cheerful to the police leaving as well. Passed a few wisecracks, and we marched him down again into into, into St George's Hospital. And he went in a very docile way. He didn't uh, make any protests at all. He went straight into the, the hospital as well, into an observation unit ward. And I really felt terribly sorry about that. Uh, see poor Sean. I went off at the night, and there he was locked away after going from one institution to another. So that's the kind of fellow Sean was. He had been burned like that, and he didn't really care too much. He was irresponsible. He had been steeled in the fires of life. From the fire to the sea, with his options narrowing yet again, with no sign of the promised second book being delivered, with five years of dissipation in Nimerick, and in the grip of something that none of his friends could really understand, Burke went to Kilkee out on the Atlantic coast. Nimerick's watering hole but a place he had never had a holiday in, unlike most Limerick people. Why? To attempt a childhood he never had? To try and write? Because he was too proud to stay on a Limerick moneyless? Because the weight of his own contradictions were bowing him down, the socialist who was unable to live in Russia, the Anglophile who had dealt a blow to the British establishment, the man of action who was now sunk into sloth, the he-man who had come to the notice of the Gardaí, for homosexual activity. Who can tell what the contradictions were? Who knows? In the run of his life, the water was rising to close the eyes of the bridge. Well, my name is Larry Collins. I'm a native of Kilkee, although I spent many years overseas. I first came home from the States. I had a bar, and then I opened the Carbon Park, and I uh, sold the bar. So in the afternoons, I used to go for a walk around the beach in Kilkee, stop off at the Royal Marine Hotel for a drink on my way home. And nearly every evening when I went to the Marine, Sean Burke was always sitting at the counter. So after uh, a few evenings, we got to say hello or hi, and that's how I got to know Sean Burke. What did you make of him? Well, to me, he was always very polite, very pleasant. He never uh, was rough, just never interfered with anybody. 
If you spoke to Sean, he spoke to you. Otherwise, he did not speak to you. A civilized man. Oh, yes. Very, very civilized. Very well-mannered. Sean lived in a mobile home at the old railway station, Kilkee. And I'd say when Sean had not money, he went walking every day. He, he used to walk to Kilrush, about eight miles to Kilrush and eight miles back. And sometimes he'd go to Quern. So I often asked him uh, who used to meet on the road. So he used to tell me that he was writing a book at the time. And he used to say the passages out loud. And he used to have a great laugh because he thought the people, local people would be thinking he was crazy. But uh, he was reciting the passages to uh, the new book about his prison in England. And he used to walk this road. Now, did you often pass him on the road? Oh, I often passed Sean many, many times on the road. He always had a walking stick, and he borrowed a neighbor's brown dog for uh, company. But um, I say the only time Sean went for a walk was when he was short the money. Otherwise, he'd be in the pub. Otherwise, he was in the pub. But he was a very expensive man in a pub. I never had a drink with Sean because his drinks were too expensive for me. Sean never had anything less than a, a large one. And, and would he take something back with him? Well, of course, when Sean was leaving the pub to go home at night, he'd always bring his quart with him. Because Sean would say he'd wake up about three in the morning and he'd have to have a drop. He had the horrors at three in the morning. Well, I won't say the horrors at three in the morning. Loneliness, maybe. Probably loneliness. It was about ten past five in the evening. I was going out for a walk. And I saw my friend Paddy Stapleton, he's a mechanic in Kilkay at a local garage, called me. He was leaning over a body on the side of the road. I just went over to have a look, and then I discovered it was Sean Burke. And then a few more neighbours gathered around, and somebody asked, was there a doctor called? So I went into my own house and I called the doctor, which I think somebody else had already phoned for one. A short time afterwards, Dr. Mangan arrived and he worked on him at the corner for about five or six minutes and then he decided that he'd be better to remove him to a house. So I decided to leave him into my house. So they got some kind of a, 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 a board and they put him on it and took him into the house. And a short time afterwards, Dr. Nolan arrived and the two doctors, well, until Sean died about 10 past 7, 20 past 7 that evening, the two of them worked non-stop on him. They pumped his chest, shoved needles here on him. But to me, Sean never opened his eyes. Was he breathing? Oh, Sean was breathing very, very heavy and fighting very, very heavy. Fighting very heavy. But I don't think he knew what was happening. Was he uttering sounds? I was just muttering, just muttering, just fighting very hard. And about, uh, about 10 minutes before he died, the local ambulance arrived and uh, they just went in and the nurse came in, the attendant came in. So Sean died, so they just, that was the end. When you went to the caravan, the mobile home, what did you see? Well, the local guardie were also present when Sean died, or during the two hours he was in the house with me. So they said that uh, 
they just wanted to see was there any valuables on him. So I was a witness, being a civilian. So we just searched Sean and all we got on him was the keys of the mobile home and just a few pence. Then they asked me would I go to his mobile home with them uh, to see was there any valuables in the mobile. So we proceeded to the mobile and in the mobile we just could find nothing. Uh, there was a canvas cover to keep out the rain over half it. And uh, his own little cubicle was tidy, very small, and uh, nothing in it, just uh, clean clothes, clean underwear, a couple of clean shirts, a few papers thrown around, a few books in different languages, his own book in different languages. But to me, there was nothing else. Did you ever know him to have a manuscript or to be working on a manuscript? Well, Sean always said that he was writing one because he used to spend a lot of his time in one of the beach shelters with his typewriter typing. So I believe he did have one. But there was no sign of it in the mobile home? Definitely not. Could anybody else have gotten into the mobile home that morning when he was out? Uh, no. Nobody. I, d I doubt it very much, because why would anyone want to break into a mobile? It was just a padlock that was on the door of the mobile. And it was locked when you got to it? With the guard, he arrived with me, uh, they opened it, and I went in to be a witness that, uh, that they did not take anything from it. And there was nothing in the mobile. There was nothing to take. Well, I was at the inquest, you know, and I was expecting some very dramatic uh, things from the, the coroner, you see, and um, when, when the evidence, all the evidence w was uh, heard, of course, uh, there was a jury of uh, five men, I think, and four women. Uh, the evidence was, ve was very, very, uh, very simple. He just, he, he collapsed in Kilkee and he died on his way to Ennis Hospital. But they, certainly this, the uh, coroner definitely said that uh, there were no great traces of uh, alcohol in his blood, and certainly no trace of drugs. And he did make reference, uh, he spoke to the body of the court and he directed his remarks to the um, journalist to take note of that in view of all the rumour on the paper about the death of Sean Burke and the possibility that he was, uh, that he was uh, seen to by the CIA or the KGB. Uh, they certainly, they found nothing in him except that he, his lungs would be, uh, gave him trouble. He had bronchitis. Uh, his lungs were, were, were in a bad state and he didn't smoke, of course, and he didn't drink for days before he died because I know this for a fact, he didn't have any money. Sean Burke didn't drink for four or five days before he died and it certainly may, the drink may have contributed a certain amount and uh, there was a mention of, um, of a lack of food, you know, that uh, he hadn't eaten and I do know this for a fact because when some people went to visit the caravan in Kilkee, there was nothing there except a half loaf of dry bread and a few uh, tea bags and no traces of and Sean of course didn't uh, he didn't have hot water in, in, in the caravan and he was just living in a sleeping in a sleeping bag and one blanket and it was winter it was winter and very cold in Kilkee so I would imagine that contributed to Sean's uh, why was there this question mark over his death why did people say or assume that uh, he may have been exterminated with extreme prejudice by either the KGB or, or well, other Well, there was always the hint that Sean knew a little more 
than he pretended to know. And some people think that maybe he, he was knocked off because uh, he he was uh, he had some correspondence going, I believe, with somebody in England anyway. And um, it was suspect. And Sean knew a lot, of course. But he didn't talk a lot. But maybe he must have had mentioned in some pubs. Occasionally he would slip, but he'd never say a lot about the springing of Blake or some of the people in England, but uh, occasionally he did uh, mention uh, some high-ranking people in England he had known. So maybe that's where the suspicion came from. High-ranking people who uh, were involved in the backup group to the Possibly, escape. Possibly, yeah. Was it, said, was it said locally at all that uh, in, his, in his later years and with the depths of the despair he plummeted that he was writing to England asking for money and threatening that if he didn't get paid certain amounts to keep him going, he would reveal the names of people uh, in the British establishment who were involved in the spring. Of yeah, well, that was a rumour that I heard anyway. You know, that he, yeah, I heard that rumour myself. But how valid it is, I don't know. Because Sean was, in many ways, although I, I do know that he was in a bad state at the end, but uh, he was quite discreet as well. I would imagine he would have waited for a while, you know, before he would have um, revealed anything. We raise that hair only to late. Sean Burke died from natural causes. That is the view of the two doctors who attended him at his death. It is the view of another specialist at Barrington's Hospital in Limerick who performed an autopsy, which is a detailed examination of internal organs. And it is also the view of the Clare coroner, Dr Tom Daly. For ethical reasons, to do with the rules of the medical profession, they are unable to give their testimony on tape but that is their considered judgment. For the record, Sean Burke's death certificate reads, for January 26th, 1982, cause of death, acute pulmonary oedema, left ventricular failure, coronary thrombosis, certified. I don't agree with the theory that he, yes, he was got at down there. I think he died of natural causes, because don't forget, even though he was only 47 years of age, he wrecked himself. He had never taken any precautions with his health, and, and he got a, a stroke, uh, I would say, of sorts. He died fairly soon afterwards, and he had one pound and four pennies in his pocket. And when his brother came from Scotland to, to see him, he was had the clothes that he stood up in only. That's all he had. Uh, and also inside the, the caravan, there was a the third of a bottle of milk and about half a loaf of bread and nothing else, and one pound, four pennies in his pocket of his trousers. We went into the Munster Fair Tavern, even though it was during a general election campaign, I could never forget it. It was the day the government came down, in January of 1982, and I got the news that morning that Sean had died, and really it was cast a Norman over the whole proceedings that were to follow in Leinster House. I cast my vote against the budget on the basis of the abolition of the food subsidies and the uh, imposition of VAT on footwear and clothing. So therefore the government came down on that day, Sean Burke would certainly have approved of my vote on that day. Um, he was certainly happy that I was in Leinster House and that I became a TD, and he would have been happy that I exercised my, um, my vote in that, in that way because he had, as some people have said about him, he had a, a streak of anarchy in him. So I had never, hadn't forgotten my, 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 my wish, or Sean's wish that I would honour it uh, by having a drink in the Muster Fair Tavern on that day. So I came down from Dublin, and even though it was during the campaign, we took time off to bury Sean, and we all went in afterwards to the Mustard Fair Tavern and we drank to Sean's health. You take, for instance, the funny side of his life. He walked into a bank in William Street and handed together the black bag and said, excuse me, darling, I have a gun. 
Would you put £10,000 into that bag, please, or I'll use it? So, you know, he was arrested. <laughs> he was a, a zany character. Four days later on, he tapped at the brink mad van in William Street, and the, the little hatch where to put the money in, he tapped the hatch. He said, excuse me, old chap, he said, would you mind filling that bag? So, you know, Sean, you could never know when you had it. Very, very few people, to my mind, got inside Sean Burke. Very, very few. There was something eating away at that man, gnawing away, and I have a feeling that he never wanted to drink, he never wanted to be a deviate, he basically wanted to be a normal man, and he had difficulty in being normal. Normal in the sense that he wanted to drink normally, he wanted to behave normally. You know, he, he led a very sad life at the end. So basically, I think he wanted to be, he was being, he was playing a game. That's the impression I got from Sean. Sean Burke was basically an honorable, decent, upright man. But unfortunately, the booze beat him. This is Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. Fox Michael calling Baker Charlie. Come in, please. Over. do not a prison make and iron bars a cage. Over. I am innocent and quiet. Take this for a hermitage. Over. Richard Lovelace must have been a fool. Over. Or maybe just a 